All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. A common theme and discussion in some of our favorite Best Picture winners so far has been focused on darker aspects of storytelling and filmmaking. We talked about alcoholism with The Lost Weekend, mental health in Rebecca, and the horror of war in All Quiet on the Western Front. These were all touched on again in the 1946 Best Picture winner, The Best Years of Our Lives. The film features these in incredibly strong ways through their three main characters. What they come back to after fighting in the Second World War was common for returning soldiers. They were broken, lost, and pensive on their experience in the war. And the irony of all this is the film's title, The Best Years of Our Lives. So I wanted to ask John, what does the title mean to you, and does it represent something else about the film? I would say it summarizes for me, and I've seen other people kind of describe it this way, where it's simply that these soldiers, and now returning from home, they're civilians now for the first time in many, many years, and they feel like a lot of them, especially being younger, and especially when you look at like Homer, and as you go throughout, you're missing the best years of our lives by being at war, right? By not being at home, whether you're older, like the sergeant who's not at home, he's missing it the best years of his life because he's not seeing his kids grow up, or Homer missing the best years of his life because not only is he drastically injured from this, but he's at that perfect ripe time where he would probably like settle down, get married, have kids. And then you have the captain who's like newly married, it's kind of assumed, right? And he's yeah. losing the best years of his life because that's, you know, that r- amazing romantic period where you're like with someone and you fall in love and for with someone forever. So, I yeah, to me, it just symbolizes what they've lost, essentially. And it's a, a really sad title when you think about it that way. But I think it's really powerful that it's kind of labeled as the best years of our lives, especially going into it as a viewer and if you don't know much this is actually the first movie that i've seen now in in the kind of best picture catalog here so going into it i already knew what this was really going to be about but just knowing that title and hearing that i think it would kind of have a bigger gut punch on on the reality of what the film actually is and and seeing their home life and seeing it come back and kind of experience what america is like and what what's changed and, and what really hasn't changed so what do you think it uh, means ben what, what's your thoughts yeah I'm, I'm pretty much along the same lines and to me, it's like that dual-edged sword where the best years of our lives are the stuff that they missed. It's also the stuff that, that they get to experience after the fact, but also there comes the horror and the tragedy because of the fallout of the war and how that impacts them coming back. And at the same time, it, it almost like wants you to believe that the best years of their lives was being in the war, that those years that they were there, like that was the best times they had. And, you know, it, it's not like I can... We get like specific stories from them of like why it's like that, but it just feels that there's this weight that they were carrying and this time that they had and that, that they then come back to, you know, when they come back to home and to America, that there's just something that isn't there that was there during the war. And so that there's just multiple ways I think you can look at it. And ultimately what I wanted to talk about and focus on, you know, these cold opens give us a chance to not only talk about the the movie itself, but talk about different aspects of film and, and, and the storytelling elements is the title and just what a movie title can do. And so what is in a movie title and does it matter wholly to the film itself? Like, does it really have that much of an impact on what the film is there? There's certainly many movies where a title has nothing to do with it, but then the title has, has everything to do with the film. Uh, so I just want to get your thoughts on like titles of film and, 
in, in how we react to them as audiences. Well, I think it's especially changed a lot recently, especially with streaming services where it's less about the actual title and more about a thumbnail or an image that kind of sells you on the experience. But thinking about it from the time and especially in the forties here, we're not really into the swing of TV. It's, it's still kind of predominantly on radio. So what you're going to hear is either an advertisement in the newspaper where you see a title. Maybe if you're lucky, you see like an image from the film, but you're mainly just going to hear the name on a radio, maybe like who's in it and the title in the newspaper. So I would imagine back then and, and at this time where we are in, in the best picture lineup with the Academy, I, I imagine it's extremely important. It's supposed to sell the idea and not only kind of make you question of what the film's going to be about, but also kind of give you information enough to kind of judge and guess. And it's interesting because the best years of our lives is could be kind of taken in a lot of different ways. And I think that's definitely intentional, like we just discussed. But it's also, I think it would surprise people a lot and, and really like make people go into this film not expecting it to be about a post-war, about you know PTSD and yeah and not knowing all the kind of really emotional tragic stuff in the film yeah that, that wasn't what I was expecting it when I first saw the film title and you know you look at the list of all the best picture winners and you're just like okay what can that one be about what can that one you see the best years of our lives and it's just you, you don't know you, you don't have the context for it you, you think of yes something that's happy you think of something that like this movie is going to be about a reminiscing and and what and like the best time growing and you think like, Oh, maybe it was about growing up. And like, that was the best time. Or there was a time when we were like young adults and like, that's what you think. And then when you get into this the actual film and you're watching it for the first time, you start to realize that it's not about that. There's nothing really happy about this. And then you, you think about the weight of that title more and more and more as you get deeper and deeper into the main characters lives and the trauma that they deal with. And that again, like that's, that was my point before that there's so many different ways you can take it. It has that, that dual edge sword to it. At, I, I just find it to be really fascinating that, that that was the specific title that was chosen for it. And it's actually only mentioned once in the film, but I digress because mainly we want to talk about one thing. And that one thing is, is the best years of our lives worthy of the best picture award of best years of our lives. Three World War II veterans, two of them traumatized and the other disabled, return home to an American Midwest to discover that they and their families have been irreparably changed. The plot of the film follows the lives of three veterans returning from service at the end of World War II to the fictional Midwestern town of Boone City. United States Air Force Bombardier Fred Derry, Navy Petty Officer Homer Parrish, and Army Platoon Sergeant Al Stevenson all return home to Boone City. Before their respective military service, Fred was a soda jerk who married Mary shortly before shipping out. Al was a banker living with his wife Millie, adult daughter Peggy, and teenage son Rob. Homer was a star high school athlete living with his parents and sister next door to his girlfriend Wilma. Homer lost both hands during the war and returns with a mechanical hook prosthetics. Each man faces challenges integrating back into post-war society. Homer deals with the adjustments he and his family and Wilma face in light of his disability. Al's penchant for alcohol and the adjustments of returning to the banking business cause tension with his family and business associates. Fred, who experiences flashbacks of his bombing raids, becomes frustrated with his wife he barely knows and an employer who fails to appreciate him and who eventually fires him when Fred punches a man in defense of Homer. 
Fred and Peggy become attracted to each other, which puts the married Fred and Al at odds. Fred eventually leaves his cheating wife, and with no seeming future in Boone City, he decides to catch the next plane out. At the airport, Fred visits an aircraft boneyard and has another flashback. He's rused by a work crew boss who agrees to hire Fred to help dissemble the warplanes for prefabricated housing material. Now divorced, Fred serves as best man at the wedding of Homer and Wilma, where he sees Peggy and they finally reunite. Best Years of Our Lives starred Myrna Loy as Millie Stevenson, Frederick March as Al Stevenson, Dana Andrews as Fred Derry, Teresa Wright as Peggy Stevenson, Virginia Mayo as Mary Derry, Kathy O'Donnell as Wilma Cameron, Hoagie Carmichael as Butch Angle, and Harold Russell as Homer Parrish. The film was directed by William Wyler, written by Robert E. Sherwood from a novel by McKinley Cantor, produced by Samuel Goldwyn, music by Hugo Friedhofer, cinematography by Greg Toland, film editing by Daniel Mandel, and art direction by Perry Ferguson and George Jenkins. So we had like a pretty quick synopsis than what we normally would do on this podcast. And part of that was due to the length of the film. And I think that's probably the best way to start this discussion about the best years of our lives. And that's because this film is, is an ep- kind of an epic pretty much. It's almost three hours. It follows three huge storylines and does a really good job weaving through them. But then when you actually think about the plot and like how everything develops, it's, it's a pretty short story, which is why we kept that synopsis pretty, pretty quick and, and kind of to it. Um, so yeah, so it's this huge long story and, and it jumps right into it. At least I feel it jumps into the story pretty immediately. The opening scene really gets you involved in the three main characters, Fred, Homer, and Al. And you, you feel so much weight at the beginning of the film. You, you, you instantly get it and you instantly realize that this film, as we said in the beginning, wasn't a happy thing. There's nothing that the best years of our lives, I think are supposed to be positive in terms of that name, but in terms of like all the negativity is really what oozes out of the first scene. And that first scene opens up in an airport where the three main characters are all held up in this, like, I don't even know what to call it. It's like a military, like building in the back of like an airport where are all these like soldiers are just waiting to get back to their homes. But every other American in the air, in the airport gets to freely go around. They get to, they get whatever they want just to fly and get home. Whereas these soldiers really have to wait they have to wait the time to get back home. I mean, they don't really indicate how long they're there. I feel like it has to be almost a whole day that they're all of them are waiting to get back. And then it takes what's probably like several days just to get back. Um, so they really have a nice, lengthy, strong intro. And to me, it, it just there's so many different ways to start with it. But let's start with Fred because he's the first person we really get to meet. Uh, so Fred is played by Dana Andrews. And he, the first thing that really sticks out is that he's just trying to figure out a way to get home. And the travel secretary at the airport is kind of just like not really giving a shit about him. But then another, just a civilian who has money, who knows what he's doing, has everything all lined up, is like, yeah, I know what I'm, you know, help me out first. Like I'm more important, which she does. But for Fred, who's coming back as a soldier, he doesn't get that kind of courtesy. He doesn't get that kind of respect. And that's when he gets put into where all the other soldiers are waiting. And then when he counters... Alan Homer. So what was your initial impressions of just even the beginning of that scene where Fred just kind of gets the, I don't give a fuck about you. I don't care like where you're going, but the civilian gets all the attention and all the courtesy from the, uh, from the travel secretary. It's funny hearing you call the movie an epic because I, I would have probably never 
Well, epic thought in length. Or considered that. It's not. I wouldn't say. I mean, like. I mean, like epic in length. It's not like this. It's not like a Ben Hur or like a Titanic. You know. Yeah, because usually of, I would just. I was thinking about that while you were talking, and I was just like, hmm. I mean, it's definitely epic in length, and there's a lot that happens. A lot of characters that you kind of have to like, dive and dig through. When I think of epics, yeah, I do think of like shit like that where it's more focused on like these big adventures where it's globe trotting or you see a bunch of different like locales and locations. So it's funny. And I was thinking about that and I was like, well, he's like a epic melodrama, a melodramic melodrama <laughs> epic. Because <laughs> uh, that's really what it is. I mean, it's it's a melodrama focused on all of these soldiers and it's a lot about just their home lives. And I mean, the majority of the sets are Fred's working. So he's at the shop or they're all at their individual homes. So it's very domesticated and it kind of focuses on their home life. And I think it's a great opening because it really just establishes what the film is and establishes these three main characters and how different they are. And they are, 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 they all are very drastically different and you kind of immediately see that. And I really love my favorite part about the scene is the way they kind of reveal Homer's hands in the way they're kind of talking and the sergeant basically stops mid-sentence as he notices Homer lost his hand. So what was your first like thought when you first saw uh, our, our, our one of our main characters, Homer? Yeah, so they, to kind of like backtrack a little bit. So yeah, so Fred deals with all that and then he goes there and, and everyone's waiting to sign up uh, for, uh, you know, to go home. There's like a whole like waiting list and you see, you do see Homer in the corner. You see him with his, what you assume are his hands in his pocket. He's kind of sitting by himself. And when I figure what it is, like they have to like, I think they're asked to like push a plane, like onto the tarmac, I think is what it is. And then he doesn't get up. And then a soldier kind of like quips at him. He says, what's the matter sailor tired or something. And you're kind of like, yeah, why are you not standing up and doing anything? So you kind of don't know how to play it as the audience. But then the big reveal is, yeah. So they finally, Fred gets called up. Homer gets called up that their plane is finally here to take him home. And they have to just sign a piece of paper. And that's when Homer takes out his hands or really his hooks. And that's, and I gasped audibly <laughs> when that happened because I wasn't ready for that. I wasn't ready for something that dramatic or that, um, that tense in this movie from 1946. I did not think they were going to touch on someone's disability and a disability where they, cannot they only have hooks for hands and it's so it's like pretty uh it's pretty dramatic and in your face to start at first so that like that's what really shocked me about his character but then it became instantly powerful because homer is like i got this and he signs it beautifully and does it so well and with ease that you're like okay this guy is okay with, with his disability and that you're you're kind of rooting for him already that you're very supportive of him because he is okay with himself um, at least from the outward perspective, you learn more and more that that's, that's not really the case. But yeah, I mean, it's it's incredibly powerful to see that. And then it just leads you right into the story where then they meet Al on the plane and then you start to get more and more and they really develop that like brotherhood vibe, you know, that that sent that bond uh, because either whether they're all going back home because they're all in the war together. There's that instant bond between the three of them that is really captivating in this opening scene. Yeah, not only the the planer at home is not only really beautiful, whether using this kind of like, you know, early kind of, not matte paintings, but projector probably playing in the background as all of our actors are Which sitting. Which is so cool. Like yeah, it looks, looks really great and it looks really fucking phenomenal, honestly. And it's kind of shocking to see how well it looks at 1946. But 
I was just really charmed by this because we're getting such like a natural, naturalistic view. And I'll probably say that a lot throughout this film because it is so natural and earnest and, and honest reveal and look into these characters' lives. And they really do feel like real living flesh and blood characters. And that's like the first kind of sense that this is not like a schlocky kind of tongue-in-cheek look at post-war America. It really wants to be earnest and respectful for people that, you know, maybe watching this that have similar experiences or know people like this. So this was a great time for them to kind of like bond. And I found it really fascinating from the film's point of view too, because it's like, it's really similar to what they probably experienced in war. I mean, they were Navy and Army uh, as well, but, you know, Fred being the bomber, he's so used to this environment, so he's the one kind of, like, taking the charge. So you're kind of already getting to know their, like, kind of different dynamics, what kind of war they kind of experienced, the, the war that they saw, because it's all very different uh, for each kind of person in the film. It kind of stands for the Army, Navy, and, uh, and the, the Air, Air Force. Force. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's really beautiful because they're just like looking down and they're seeing all the plane and they're really excited. They like, can't believe that what they're looking down at is America for like the first time in, in probably years. It could be even five years depending on when they join. So yeah, I really love the plane ride home scene. I think it gives you so much information about the characters yeah. without being just exposition heavy. Yeah. And it's not even that they're just happy to be back in America. Like you can clear, you can clearly see that, but then from a film and, and visual standpoint, Weiler does a great job captivating middle America, this America that wasn't really impacted by the war on in, you know, in the country. Whereas like you look at Weiler's past film, Mrs. Miniver, which won best picture and also best director. And that was all about the, the middle-class British people who were getting bombarded. And, you know, obviously everyone lower class and upper class throughout the UK was getting bombarded throughout world war two, but there's a clear, difference between how britain dealt with it and then how america dealt with it and when these soldiers come back to america it's like as if nothing had ever happened boone city was not impacted at all it's just that people had went away and things just kept going and going and i think like a big signal of that is like homer asking how the 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 baseball team was doing it's like oh they're you know they're not doing well again it's like oh just another year i think they're called the beavers the boone city beavers like another year and it just keeps feeding to that idea that middle america that 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 this idealistic look of it just keeps on going and going and going despite what we now know as like a really hor- horrific war and what we know that these characters must have went through you know so it's uh it's it's pretty it's pretty cool and and strange to see uh as the audience but it, it really brings you right in and then what the film does it, it starts to build up this tension and the tension is that these men finally have to go home. They do a really good job. And again, like, I think this is like what I was saying before about the length. They do a good job balancing it. So there takes time to do this stuff. Like the intro, I think we said it was like 20 to almost like 30 minutes of like the film between when they first meet and then pretty much when uh, the last one of them is home. So the first person though, to get dropped off home is Homer and his family Homer. I would say he's probably 21. Yeah, if I had to guess, probably he's early twenties. Probably, probably yeah, probably early twenties. He comes home, everyone's so happy. You know, again, like an idealistic background: mother and father, little sister, girlfriend lives next door. So, it all they're all happy to see him. But then all of a sudden, when they realize that his hooks are there, and, and even though they know that that was that, it's just as if like Homer had died. Like Homer is still there, and like that's the sense that I got, which like really hurt me a lot to see was that Homer is accepting of himself. And that, and again, that goes back to the bond that Fred and Al are very accepting of Homer, but then Homer goes home 
and his family doesn't seem to want to accept it. His mother starts crying. Homer can't even hug his his girlfriend, Wilma, uh, who he talks really lovingly about. But when he finally gets to see her, um, he doesn't really do much about it. And there's actually a great line because uh, in, in the car, Fred and Al are watching this and they're saying you have to hand it to the Navy. They really show that kid how to use hooks. And Al said they didn't show him how to hug his girl or stroke her hair. So it's like, yeah, like the Navy, you know, the army puts you back together, but doesn't know how to put you back together as a human type of thing. Um, so just seeing that whole interaction and the way Homer comes back, it, it establishes what he's going to have to go through in the film. And honestly, it's like my favorite subplot of not just this movie, but I think of all the best picture winners. It's one of my favorite subplots. Yeah. Homer is really the heart of the film. He it's focuses pretty evenly for the most part among all these characters, but Homer is really that soft spoken and just honest and just really earnest person that you immediately love him from the very beginning before you even know about any sort of disability like that. And that's what's so tragic about his character is that he's not ashamed or, you know, he doesn't look down upon even himself. He's just so afraid of what others think of him and ruining the life that he once had. And, you know, he has this, um, beautiful woman that he's probably going to get married to and she still wants to get married and she still wants to be there and his family still loves him but he's so afraid of like the way people are going to look at him and, and treat him differently you know to constantly tell someone like oh like I'm sorry and this is the worst thing like it it's something that I think a lot of people can relate to whether it's like a death in the family and, and people kind of reach out to you without really any concern and just say the basic things like, Oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Like that constant reiteration of what people think they need to do in order to make you feel better sometimes makes you feel a lot worse. And that's a really complex idea that I think this film kind of takes and it really digests it down using Homer and Harold Russell. I mean, what an amazing yeah, performance. Yeah. I mean, we didn't really talk too much about him as an actor, but he kind of just came in and got pulled in. He wasn't an actor. That, that, I think exactly. that's the thing. It's like he was not an actor. Like he was an actual veteran who did lose his hands. And and the I'm forgetting the story now. I think I, you might know it. You have it. I think in your notes. But like they they found him that William Wyler saw him in a, in a different film. It was like a short film. And then that's where he was like, oh, let's cast him. Let's use him. And he was he nailed it. He really did nail it with like really no acting experience prior to it. Yeah, he he was uh, seeing William Wyler saw him in a scene from uh, Army training film, which was called Diary of a Sergeant, and that was specifically about uh, wounded servicemen and how they're kind of going through rehabilitation and and kind of getting back into life, which then plays directly key in hand to that quote that you were just talking about of how they were kind of teaching these Army men or Navy, whoever it was, in the military in order to kind of come back to life dis- disabled or have some sort of injury but still live a normal life, but. That's not always as perfect as they make it seem, you know, and that's that's really powerful. And I think I know I've seen you talk a little bit and we talked a little bit about the use of mirrors. But we first get that, I think, here while they're driving in the car. Oh, my God. That rearview mirror. Yeah. You look into the rearview mirror as like they drive away from Homer. Yeah. Yeah. So they drive away from Homer. um, So you're so Homer gets paused for a second. His storyline and the next person that gets dropped off at home is Al. And Al is the older one. He's married. He has two kids, two older kids, actually. I think when when he leaves them, I mean, they were probably Peggy was probably 15 or 16. And then his son, I think Rob is was probably 10 or 11. So he comes back and they're essentially adults. They're they're all yeah. grown up, which is really shocking for him. But it's actually this really earnest way that he comes back home because he 
he he gets to the door. He tells his kids to like kind of be quiet because he's going to surprise his wife Millie, who's played by Myrna Loy, who is just am- what a great reveal she had when she got into the film. So yeah, so he comes home. They're all, you know he tells him to shush, and then then she sees him, and it's like this big thing. And you can tell again that there's this like there's this dissonance between them. That like, yeah, I'm your husband. Yeah, I'm your father. But do I know you? Like, do you know me? Type of thing. And you know, I'm coming back from, yeah, the war and all of a sudden I'm back here and you guys are not how I left you. And you can feel that weight immediately as he's assessing the situation. Um, you know, there are mentions about how he lost so much weight and how the clothes that he had doesn't fit him so well anymore. And so it sets up again, like this life of like, okay, here's the typical American man. And this is what he's coming back to where he's already lost in his own family Although he kind of gets it back of his family, but that's kind of Al's whole thing is that he's lost in society because he's coming back to something that while he kind of gets the same role and position when he returns, it's not the same role and position when he left. So it's just this, it's this very odd thing. And then finally we get to Fred who just goes, he tries to go to uh, his wife at thing at first, but then he can't find her. And so he goes to his parents and even that's strange because he doesn't, really want to be with his parents, but yeah, his parents show so much support and love. And I, and I want to ask that question is like, why do you think Fred is so ashamed to be at home when there doesn't seem to really be anything that should be as shameful when he does go back home to his parents, at least. I think it's probably just the fact that he's can't find his wife and he's going home to his parents first before the person that should be, you know, most eager and most certain to be there when you greet her. So, or when you kind of greet him from returning to war, but I wanted to, go back and speak about the scenes with Al Stevenson kind of going home and, and being with Millie Stevenson, his wife, played by Myrna Loy. I found it so weird. Not only does she have top billing and she has the least to do out of this whole movie out of anyone in the cast that we read out, there is such a weird undertone that she is cheating on him. And I don't know if you got that from what? watching this That's movie. That's not what I got. There's definitely the sense of like, okay, I don't know you. You've been gone. But she constantly throughout this this opening scene when you get introduced to the family, she's just like, oh, like, I, I wish I knew he was here. Like, she's constantly, like, on edge as if, like, she, she almost doesn't want him to be here in a weird way where the kids are like, oh, I, hi, dad. Like, I kind of heard a lot of things about you, but I don't really know you that well because it's been so long. But for her, it's like this weird kind of undertone I got of like, oh, is this like about another man? Is she kind of worried about like things that he doesn't know or he he might like find out? It was this weird kind of feeling I got. And there's also a conversation that they have about their daughter, uh, who's Peggy Stevenson, right? Yeah. And she's old enough, right? She's probably like 18, 19 at this point. Do they say her age? No, I don't think they, don't. they do. But th- without saying it, you know, classic 1940s language, they're basically inferring, like, whether she's had sex or not yet, like, whether she's gotten the talk. And I think it's supposed to show Al Stevenson not really knowing how much he's grown, like, where they are in life. But I found that really kind of weird and and interesting, weird little, like, tidbit of their family. Do you even remember that? It's, like, no, really I, quickly where they're talking I, about it. I, I do. But I'm just more – I'm more fixated on your thoughts on Myrna Loy and, and – what Millie was up to because one, I actually think she has a lot to do with the story. I think she's a really, I think she's a great character. Um, I think she plays it. I think Myrna Loy plays it really well, but to, I don't think she was cheating at all. I mean, maybe, well, there's no like follow up to that. It felt right. like a plot line. that just like they could cut from the movie. Yeah. My, I mean, she definitely opinion. was taking 
a back, you know, she was take, she was surprised that he was home. Like she didn't know. I mean, not everyone had iPhones that can be like, Hey, just landed in America. I'll see you in a day or sure, two. Sure. But it was more of, it more so felt like, uh, like I'm not ready for this in a weird way. Yeah. Well, I think that again speaks to what I was, what I was saying before about that. There's this, there's this like separation between the family. There's this like obvious distance between them that they're trying to work. Oh, through. Yeah. yeah trying to work through and overcome. And actually speaking of, sex like i actually think the way that um that alan and millie really come together is that they finally have sex you know there's like a lot of tension and when they finally yeah that's get, kind of removed yeah, yeah when they finally do you know fuck it's just like okay we're husband and wife again like I, I like that's what i got from it um but very but for me it's fascinating you said that she doesn't have too much to do with the story whereas i felt like she really one held al together and then really put the plot line of what ultimately ultimately what fred and peggy are together um there and we'll, and we'll get to that but i mean she's definitely important for al but i was something i haven't really gotten to yet because it's not until the end of the movie i think al is like the weakest link out of the three of them he has the least to do in the entire movie and in the last 40 minutes he's barely he's just not in it at all so she's it's weird that she's top billed she's the most famous at the time she's probably got the most money which is absurd whether we don't need to go down that rabbit hole but she's just not in the movie that much like she's in there to, to have that scene in particular she talks to peggy uh, later on in the movie and then she kind of helps al and especially for that dinner scene and we don't need to go too much into this you know she's not that integral it's more so about the, the three men in the leading roles but yeah i just found it fascinating that she was top billed yet she's not you know that key of a of a part of the film right well i definitely i think you have some really good points though about that but uh but let's move on because i because what really then takes up the next like 30 minutes of the film is this whole like drunken adventure that al brings his family on the night he comes home that ends up bringing back in fred and homer so essentially Al's back and he's like, I got to go do something. He feels like it does. It feels like he's like, I just want to be alive. I just want to really experience it, really enjoy myself. So he takes uh, Millie and Peggy and they go out in the town and Al gets drunk, just belligerently drunk. He is, it's quite, it's really funny. I don't know if like, that's why he gave such a great performance that people love, but it, it definitely was a really funny and really lively performance as he's getting drunk. And ultimately, what they get what they get to after like multiple bars and dance clubs is this bar called uh is butch's bar which is the uncle of homer and homer's there and then fred ends up there and then it's like this one big happy reunion that they only were at what maybe like eight hours without each other and they're all so happy to see each other again so yeah so w- what do you think of like the whole drunken escapade and then how they all then come back together um and how this like eats up like a good chunk of the film at least the first like hour hour 20 minutes of the film is like this drunken escapade and like the the day after yeah it's really cute moments that they have together we'll get to the fred and peggy peggy being al's daughter and when they kind of meet for the first time but it's sweet but it also has that tinge of sadness which i think a lot of the film does that al kind of refuses to let the night end and it's probably because he doesn't want to like actually address his real issues and being actually home and dealing with the consequences of everything that he just experienced. So it has that element to it that's sad, but it's also super fun. Everyone's playing piano, and I think it's what Wyler does really well, which is build this community and build this kind of town. And it really does feel alive, and it feels like this is like a real bar that you could even step in yourself. So I really love that aspect, but 
I want to get to Fred and Peggy because honestly, I so I, this is the first movie I've seen for the first time or for the second time now watching this through for our podcast. And immediately I kind of already forgot this element of the story, but when Fred is hitting on Peggy, knowing that it's his Al's daughter, did that rub you the wrong way at first? Like it is really heavy handed cause he's drunk at first. Yeah. I think, I think, and I, and I feel that when watching these older movies, the typical thing in society was an older man got a younger woman. Yeah, way older. I uh, mean, we oh, don't really know how yeah. old Fred is. I mean, like we mid thirties. Yeah, like we both love Mad Men. Like that's a constant thing they, they they deal with. And I'm not condoning it. I'm not saying like, oh, that's like fine. Like, but it's definitely a sign of the time. So yeah, it's like odd that like, oh, this guy's gonna immediately hit on his daughter. He doesn't know her, but it. I, it works for this story, and and I like that. I mean, if I really had to put a guess on how old Fred was, who, who, what he's maybe supposed to be, I think he's supposed to be his late twenties. Yeah, it doesn't feel like that. At it, all. It, it feels like thirty five. Yeah, right, like Dana Andrews does not look like that, but I think that that's where Fred supposed to be not as yeah not as far off that it is. Yeah, it like, definitely doesn't feel that way when you're watching it. No, no, it definitely doesn't. But yeah, they they all get pretty fucked up together. And actually, there's this really good line. Again, that ties back into Homer, but it's his whole Bond thing. And Al, uh, when when his fa- when he's first with his family and they first get to Butch's bar, and he's like, "Oh my God, Homer, you're here!" And they come to the table. He, this is such a great line. He goes, uh, first we've got to get one thing straight. Homer lost his hand, and he's got those hooks instead. But they don't worry him, so they don't need to worry." anyone else and he's very drunk when he says yeah, it has nothing to do with anyone talking about yeah and but what but what again what it does is it sets up that bond and, and it sets up yeah those awkward situations where where fred likes al's daughter and then but yet they're both they're all three of them are like brothers so it's like it, it builds up and builds up tension throughout the film where um where again like they all care about homer al and fred are like gonna butt heads at some point and it, it it all starts out in this like early sequence. So they all get pretty fucked up throughout the night. Fred can't get into his wife's apartment to Mary's apartment, which is really sad to see like how he's struggling to get into the building. And you, you do feel sorry for him. So then he goes back to Al's place where he stays there for the night. And he Peggy puts him to bed. And again, he tries to pull a move on Peggy, even though, again, like he's married. He's she's Al's daughter, but he's drunk and doesn't realize it. And then in the middle of the night, he has these night terrors. So this ties back into the intro of the movie that this is one of the things the film tackles, and that's PTSD. And that's Fred's like whole storyline, how he has to deal with the trauma of, of being a bomber. And he does something that I think is pretty uncommon for these movies at this time, which is to cry, for to see a man cry out of terror. Um, which I think is is truly powerful to see him just bolt up in the in the middle of his sleep and just scream and cry because he's going through something in his head that obviously we can't see, but it's it's this whole mental, um, this whole mental. I don't want to say it's a disability, just like mental health issue that he's just going through. It's the first time that the film. I don't want to say crosses the line, but it, it goes fully into showing how bad it is and not to say that Homer doesn't have like those scenes or Al doesn't have those scenes but for him it's it's kind of put up to 11 for this nightmare scene which to me it it kind of went a little bit too far especially for how subtle the rest of the movie is and most of it's just kind of expressed through action and dialogue and not so much as blatant as like a nightmare scene but I think it's necessary it's integral to show Fred's kind of struggle because 
his feels the most internal, like internal of what he's experienced. And that's a really hard thing to show. I think a nightmare is like a great way to kind of show that and show that kind of PTSD and, and bring that back. But for Al and, and Homer, it's kind of more they use their, not their careers, but for Al, they use his career. And for Homer, they kind of just use his home and family life to kind of set all those those uh, conflicts up. So right. I think it's necessary, though, to kind of show more about uh, Fred, but it may be a little too dramatic, I think, for the rest of the film. So can I challenge that, though, for a second, just because you said this movie is very naturalistic. And definitely wouldn't it be naturalistic, though, to show that um, that a guy who's going through something would keep it internal until the moments where he's alone. And yeah, for I, sure. So like, that's, I mean, I, I, I think gr- it's more so overacted. I think okay. for, like when Fred wakes up and he's like, like really intense, which like, I get it. Like my uncle uh, has had PTSD like that from war. And I've heard about all like the craziness that's happened, like especially with sleepwalking and stuff like that. So I know it's real and I'm not going to try to like downplay anyone's PTSD from such traumatic events, but it just felt a little too heavy-handed. And okay. I, I love this film. I, I don't really think there's a moment that's like this throughout it. It's just like a tiny little nitpick. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's fair to, to, to think about that way. Um, but, yeah, so, so again, it, it adds that extra layer. Okay, so Fred's going through PTSD. Al clearly has a drinking problem. I, I don't. It's not like the Lost Weekend drinking kind of problem, but he's using alcohol as a crutch you can definitely tell yeah, he's just constantly drinking for most of the movie yeah so um so the, the film keeps on going and going and and what this for me what is the weakest part of the film is this morning after because they're all hung over al walks into the shower fully clothed which gives you a funny moment uh you know fred is kind of he's a little apologetic to Peggy for being like, Oh, I was a little too uh, handsy with you last night. Yeah. Definitely makes up for how creepy it kind of felt to me at first. Yeah, definitely. And like, and she cooks for him. So he definitely feels this sense of security. But I want to ask you is like, do you like, if they didn't have that morning after scenes, like, do you think the film would have changed at all? Do you think it just would have kept going and you would have been able to cut 15 minutes out of the film and, make it go a little bit faster. I mean, it goes pretty fast for three hours, but it could have been a little bit quicker. I think it's just how long those scenes are really. Yeah. I, I think it's kind of necessary because I think having Peggy and Fred spend more time together is necessary because we get to the moment where they kind of confess their love for each other. And, and it's already kind of a stretch that they've like, you don't really know how much time has passed and when they fall in love and they say how much they love each other. But I think even without this scene, it would be even more of a stretch that they're like that connected and that close. Right. And it helps like redeem Fred a little bit because the night before he's flirting with her. He feels like he's way older. You know, he has a wife. And at this point, we really don't even like understand why Fred would cheat on his wife. It it immediately kind of puts Fred in, in on the sideline where you're like, oh, well, kind of fuck this guy. Like, why? Why do I care about this guy anymore for a moment? And then you kind of spend more time with him. Um, one small thing about this scene and about Fred's character, though, is there's this weird... I don't know if you even will remember this, but there's this moment where he wakes up and there's all, like, the kind of drapery along the bed that's hanging down, and he kind of, like, blows on the drapes. Do you do you remember that? No. It's such a small little, like, character thing, but he... Essentially, he continues that trend, and he, like, blows on things throughout this movie. It's such a weird... Oh, really? small character. Yeah, he does it, like, <laughs> two to three times, I think. And it's all different things that he, like, will just, like, blow on. And I'm assuming it's kind of... Maybe it was brought up by Dan Andrews, who kind of was just like, oh, maybe it's something about flying and being a pilot and kind of like making things blow. And he kind of misses that like air in, in his kind of 
space, you know, or just flying and seeing things. I don't know. I'm, I'm reading a lot into it, but I thought it was a really interesting that's, small detail. That's a good detail to pick up on. I, I did not pick up on that, so I would have to literally rewatch the movie. It's, like, so fast. He's just kind of, like, looking around. He, like, blows on something. And then later in the film, he, like, does the same thing directly to Peggy, like, I think on a hat or something like that she's wearing. Huh. It's sweet. So probably the next thing to really talk about, and I only really want to talk about her, like, this one time is Fred's wife, Mary. Because she's the worst. No, we got to talk about her more. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she, I just, she's I, the worst, though. She, she's the worst. And, uh, you know, so finally Fred is able to get back into the apartment building and, and finally gets to her. And, like, she's happy to see him. I wouldn't say, though, mm-hmm. she's, like, jumping for joy that he's back. You can tell that, like, yeah, I'm happy. Like, my husband's back. Sure. But you can tell that there's, like, this, uh, like, again, like there were years apart from each other. They got married on the army base. It was this very quick thing. They just got married because they felt like they had to. And she doesn't really give too much. Like you can just tell she does not give that much of a shit about him. And what ultimately encapsulates that I think is when they go out and she, he tries to put on a suit, but she's like, no, put on your army uniform. Cause she's never seen him. She says that I've never seen a civilian clothing. It's weird. Like put back on the army uniform so I can feel more comfortable about you being my husband. But yet for Fred, he's like, I don't want to be in this uniform. This makes me uncomfortable. Like I'm trying to integrate myself back in society. And the one thing that really helps is to not dress like a, a soldier. But then the one person who I'm supposed to rely on is insisting that I wear it, is insisting that I be uncomfortable where you immediately think like Peggy would never make him do that. Peggy would let him wear whatever he wants to wear. Yeah, it's like the first reveal that uh, Mary's just kind of really petty. I mean, to put it simply, she's oh, really so just cares about the way she looks and her appearance and not just her appearance, but having him wear a suit will probably get a lot more eyes and attention on them when they go out and people will stop him and then she'll be like, yes, my my husband was a captain in the war. Like, And she'll get to brag and talk about other things. And I think that reveals more and more throughout her character as we get to their kind of financial struggles and how Fred is given, uh, I believe it's a thousand dollars from the army and from the government. And I'm assuming most of people that were discharged during World War II were given this amount. Uh, and translated now, which I found was interesting in 2021, that a thousand dollars, 1945, would be actually fourteen thousand dollars now in 2021. So that kind of shows you how drastic and how much fourteen thousand dollars would last you, depending on where you live in the country. Like it would not last you very long. I mean, if you're lucky, it would last you a month or two, depending on you know, how big your family is and, and what you need to buy and purchase. But it kind of shows that Fred's struggling. Like he left before he even has a full-time job. He worked as, as like a soda jerk. So he doesn't really understand like what his career, his future should be. And he's not concerned about money. He's more concerned about like where he fits in the world. And she just kind of refuses to take the time and even acknowledge that. Right. She just cares only about herself. And that's really apparent. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, they're all three of the main guys are answering that question. What, what do I do with myself? right now yeah how do i get back into society and mary does not provide that for fred which is ultimately what breaks them up but i think we're jumping ahead of ourselves just a little bit and um like the movie let's jump back into homer uh because homer sort of gets left out a little bit from like this main storyline of al and and fred interjecting himself into al's family and so we go back to homer and what he's dealing with is his not is his family uh i don't want to say like not like they accept him but it's his family living life now around him and also him living life around them and that also includes his girlfriend wilma who 
it, it's incredibly sad. He like doesn't want to be near her, but yet he does want to be near her, and he shuts her out when I think honestly all she wants to do and, and uh, Kathy O'Donnell she gives a great performance as Wilma because you can just tell like she just wants to love Homer and she just wants to be that source of comfort for him and that that safety net for him and it takes a it takes most of the movie for him to get there and when he does it it really pays off but the like first like big thing is um you know is homer taking off the hooks i wanted to talk about that and the first time we really get this is when his dad helps him and um it's it it it's uh shocking it's 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 harrowing it's it really makes you think and, and and feel for homer because as you're watching his nightly routine where he's just he says that i'm just a baby i'm helpless you know that i have to rely on my dad to take off the hooks like i can't even take the cigarette out of my mouth like before going to bed like i can't even put the pajamas on by myself and so just like for you in like the middle of this film when as you're seeing homer start to go through what he's going through like do you did you feel that same way that i did i'm not saying you have to but like like where were you emotionally along that journey for Homer like midway through the movie where it's really deep in there? Yeah, it's it's really tragic. It's it's sad to see him go through that process, but it's also reassuring that his father's there and he's like willing to do what he has to, to like take care of his son, but you can just see the kind of misery and it's not even Homer's ashamed of his own body. He's just ashamed that like his father has to do this for him. His father has to like probably help him like wipe and cl- like clean up after himself. Like it's, it implies a lot more than it actually shows as well. Like what I just addressed, like, you know, thinking about things from uh, just a hygienic thing or take going to the bathroom, going showering, even like something as simple as uh, anything kind of sexual. It's like, it makes you like think more and more about like how hard that life would be to live. And it really kind of brings you down on, on Homer's point of view and kind of shows you, why he's so afraid to reveal himself, why he doesn't want to go to Wilma and kind of show this re like this really dark side of himself. So it, it works perfectly. And especially later on for the setup that we'll get to that really kind of cements and and makes the scene work even better. Right. And one of the things again, that Weiler does and, and the set designers do really well is establishing Homer's room. And it's a room of, again, like a, of a teen of American teenage boy. There are photos of Homer playing, football i think there's a basketball photo of him mm-hmm. and he sits there and he and he looks at it and he stares at and you can tell he's just focusing on his hands and 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 just again that weight comes over you as he's reminiscing as he's thinking about this home that he's in and again you're also reminded that he can function just as fu- you know just normally because he's able to use those hooks because he's so confident in himself to use his disability as an ability as a way to keep on living even though mentally he's just struggling so hard, but he's willing to keep fighting through that. And it, it's, it's empowering. It, it's so, it, it's so beautiful to watch unfold. And uh, what it leads to, I mean, there are a few scenes that happen in between, but I really want to talk about this, this film, this scene in the woodshed. Cause to me, this is like, like this is the scene why Harold Russell got the praise that he did. Like, yeah. this is why, like it's so revered and so loved. So the Oscar this, clip. Yeah, it's definitely the Oscar clip. So um so what it so what happens is Wilma is again just trying and trying and trying to like get through to Homer. He's not willing to. And so what she does, she shows up to the, the woodshed in the back of Homer's house, and Homer is shooting a gun. So wh- again, Homer's able to shoot a freaking gun with these hooks. So he 
he's so he, he's so in tune of his ability to use them and he's like able to clean the rifle he's able to reload it and uh, Wilma's there to support him and the sadness of what happens is that Wilma tries to enter that territory of like why don't you love me like why don't why don't you want this like why, like I'm here I'm here for you and, and he's pushing back and pushing back and then this and what ultimately the climax of that scene is that uh, Homer's sister Luella she's like maybe 12 years old her and her friends in the neighborhood kind of spy in on them and Homer she doesn't I don't think she does that to show off that her brother has a disability it's more like ooh, look at Homer and Wilma like in the woodshed type yeah, of thing it could be I kind of read it as both honestly yeah I, I think you read as both but I I didn't think that she was trying to do anything mean um but what happens is that Homer sees this and he's like he's freaked out and he's like you want to see the hooks and he punches both of his hooks through the window of the woodshed and it's a scary moment yeah it, very dramatic yeah it's uh it's shot like low angle it, it looks like like the classic like horror movie monster breaking through like a door or something yeah and um and it, it's shocking it's, it's in your face and immediately homer is regretful of doing that he he feels remorseful that he scared his sister he feels so sad of where he is and he just he basically then tells Wilma to, you know, just to scram and he's Leave like, him, yeah. yeah, he's like, I'm all right. You know, I'm just, you know, I'm, I like, I have to go through this myself. Like, this is me. Um, yeah. Cause he can't work up the courage yet. I think to, to yeah. actually say how he's feeling. Right. Then it's easier to like push people away than it would be to actually like tell them the truth. And, and to actually, it's like, he's so afraid for Wilma to actually say something negative or like remind him about, how he's different or something like that. But even though Wilma's not doing any of those things, she just wants to help him. So you completely understand both sides of it. And it's, it makes it even more sad. It makes it even more depressing that he's so down upon himself that he can't, he's like pushing away the one person that's like really there and really desperately trying to help him. Yeah. He pushes, you know, almost pushes away his whole family. Like he, his mom isn't really in the film. Like, and she's the one that is the one that's crying at the beginning. So yeah. I, I don't know if like he, if it's intentional, that's like, I don't want to be around here because I would just upset her. But his dad is able to kind of push through it. Um, and yeah, so then later that night, what happens is that Homer shows Wilma the routine that he has to go through every night. And and, and what she would have to do as what you're hoping is going to be his wife <laughs> eventually. And what she would have to go through to take care of him. And this is really, again, this loving moment where he's accepting of her that he's finally able to show her like not only what he looks like without the hooks on, but what his life would be like. And she's all for it. You know, and she puts him to bed. She tucks him in. It's a little, it's a little erotic. And you pull, pull out a great note that I saw. And I wanted you to talk about that. Cause I thought it was a really interesting take on the movie and that scene specifically. Yeah. And it was essentially a quote that kind of describes how sexual the film is and how, in a way, he almost feels asexual because, you know, not to go too graphic here, it doesn't have to do too much with the film, but, you know, sex has a lot to do with your hands and it has a lot to do with uh, controlling the situation. And, and especially as a man, it would essentially just kind of take away any kind of like forward sexual charge or energy you might have, losing that kind of key component to your body. So it's obviously very apparent that this scene is not only just about. Wilma ex- accepting him and, and understanding this is what their life would be together and and learning you know the dark side of all of this but it's also showing 
that she's accepting him sexually, that he's going to be different and their life will never be the same, not only with these things, but also like in the bedroom and being this intimate is going to be entirely different and something new for both of them. And it's done really well. And I think there's a lot of moments like that where we talk about Al talking about his daughter or Al sleeping with his wife for the first time. And that's kind of them reconnecting. And, and there's also that kind of connection with Fred and Peggy where it's like, their kiss together kind of ignites in Fred that he he knows that he should not be with his wife and he knows that like the situation he he's in is is really disturbing. So there's a lot of like underlying sexual tension and underlying kind of, kind of sexual meaning and and messages throughout this film that I think this is like where it kind of like peaks and, and climaxes for a lack of a better term. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it definitely climaxes right there. But yeah, it's certainly fascinating to add that other layer into this because in a way all three of them are emasculated in, in different ways. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Homer with the clear, like I can't physically do anything with you. Al being not having that sexual reconnection with his wife or, and then finally able to connect with her. And then Fred, he's complete. Like he, his, he loves showing off photos of Mary in the war. Like he had like a photo of her in the bikini that he yeah. would show everyone. He had, I think he said he put it on his like window in, yeah, in the, the plane. plane. Yeah. So, and then he comes back and you know, I don't know. I don't really think they really had sex when he came back. It, no, it doesn't seem like it. Yeah, it definitely doesn't seem like it. So there's just this like interesting like subtext to it that has to do with the sex of the film and, and the characters that you can pick up on that is certainly interesting to dive deep into. Um, so that's kind of like the really big parts of Homer's storyline. And so, again, the film kind of like drops him off and we go back into this Al and Fred predominant storyline. And the big thing is that Al is now back at his bank and he's working there and he's approving loans to do other soldiers who are coming back home who didn't have work to do, didn't have any work uh, for them. So he's giving them loans. So one of them gets a farm and the head of the bank is sort of like, you shouldn't really be doing that. But like, I understand. And, and Al is very defined about it. Like that we have to have these people, you know, we have to have these people as the backbone of America. And we have to give them the trust and, and the money to be able to do this. And then he sort of kind of moves up and again in the world and the ranking and there, and then he gets celebrated. And again, what keeps on getting added more and more is that he's a drunk now that he, that he drinks, not just to like relax a little bit, but he, he's always drinking um, whether he's at home or, you know, anytime after work, always has to have a drink in his hand. And then there's this big like dinner celebration for him uh, by that the bank puts on and he's plastered, absolutely plastered and drunk and has to give this speech. And he's not really making too much sense. He says at the beginning that he's, he's, I'm just very happy to be anywhere. In fact, you know, in fact, I'm very happy. He says a few more things and then, uh, this is like a little excerpt from the speech that I wanted to talk about because I thought it was interesting for what he really talks about this film with, with Americanism and, and fighting in the war. So he says, as Mr. Milton so perfectly expressed it, our country stands today where it stands today, wherever that is. I'm sure you'd all agree with me that if I said that now's the time to stop this nonsense, face facts, get down to brass tacks, forget about the war and go fishing. But I'm not going to say it. I'm just going to sum it up in one word. My wife doesn't think I'd better sum up in that one word, though. He like looks at Millie during the time. And one, I don't know what that one word would be. But to him to say that, that it's time to stop this nonsense, that in this drunken state that he's sort of starting to realize that, like, what is America? What is our purpose here? Like, what? Like, why did we fight? Like, why? Why am I like going through all this shit? And it kind of is represented in that little speech because he's 
he has to represent this like good American man that that he's this businessman that, that gives loans to people and he should be celebrated. But he's like, I'm kind of lost in all this at the same time. Like I can do all that, but I'm just as lost as the person as the people I've been giving loans out to. And uh, it's a again, it's another good performance by Frederick March. He's I mean, I hope he wasn't drunk while he was giving that speech. <laughs> but yeah, it's really earnest. Yeah, it, it feels like he he could almost sort of have been drunk because it's like that perfect in his inflection and the way it comes off and again that this kind of feels like his kind of oscar clip scene where he really gets the belt and emote a lot here but his whole speech feels like really backhanded in a way to like the company not only backhanded to america and the way people are just kind of like looking at everyone and looking at the situation but also extremely backhanded to his company who, who he's there kind of giving a cheers to and and to his boss who he's kind of blatantly saying like you just don't understand because you haven't had the experience that I have. I mean, just to sum it up as, as simple as that, it's, it's a lot longer and it's a, a really great speech, but I'm surprised that this didn't lead to like more of his plot line and more kind of repercussions that he would face. Like maybe he gets fired from his job the same way that we see Fred later on in the film. Right. Yeah. I, I think that could have been there, but again, then Fred's whole storyline kind of takes over those kinds of scenarios. So at the same time as like this dinner is happening, Fred goes out with Mary and they bring Peggy along and she has some date with some douchebag. I think his name was like Woody. I think it was his name. But anyways, uh, so the, both of these like dinner parties are like happening at the same time. They're at this club and everyone's dancing. It's like really fun, happy time. It's really bizarre to see everyone like that squished up together, like dancing with each other. It was mm-hmm. really, really cool visuals. And then you get more of the Mary's a piece of shit character and Fred and Peggy should just be together this whole time. Like you just want them just, you just want to squish their heads together. Like just be together now. Yeah. Yeah. You just see like the glimpses that they've had and, and the night that they're, that he was drunk kind of talking to her, but then the following morning where they kind of reconnect, you could tell that Fred like doesn't stop thinking about her and, and he has more and more feelings as we go on throughout the film. And where I really loved Fred's character. I mean, he has a lot of great scenes, but there's the scene where they kind of like sneak away and they have like their own time and date together, which I really loved. But I mean, we should definitely talk about Fred helping Homer at he's working as like a soda clerk and the soda jock. And I love that scene in particular because, yeah, I called him a communist, but he's there's, <laughs> there's this American man in in the bar or in the ice cream shop at the parlor who is basically ripping on America and, and decisions we made. And, and Homer's there just trying to enjoy ice cream that Fred is serving him and he's just kind of tired of hearing this man talk about the wars as not being worth it or not being valid or not, or not being kind of right, you know, and what Homer fought for is, is nothing. It doesn't mean anything and it's over, you know, overall looking at the whole globe and looking at the whole world, it doesn't mean that much. And obviously to Homer, that's like the worst thing you could possibly say is that he lost his, his hands for nothing, for no reason at all. And you can see this back and forth of Fred like kind of disagreeing with him and clearly not agreeing with what this man's saying and is clearly on Homer's side until it gets to the point where like they're about to have a confrontation and Fred punches the guy and causes a big scene, right, where he then yeah. gets fired. What what are your thoughts on that scene? Yeah, I it's a great scene. It really touches on what again, like another big theme of the film, which is I wanna say it's Americanism, but it's it's a lot more than just that. It's what are you fighting for? And like, did you fight for the right reasons? And the guy brings up a lot of points that feel relevant to today. He, you know, he kind of like mocks them for like people who are fighting for the war. He kind of mocks the whole idea. Cause he's like, like there's, it's like, there's still shit in the world. There's still things going on that are wrong. 
And to Fred, that was hurtful. But to Homer, again, like what you said, it was extremely hurtful because that was the one thing he was, he's probably scared of the most is that, did I lose my hands for nothing? Yeah. Did I I go anything? Yeah. yeah. Like, did any of this mean something? So it's an extremely powerful thing. And I don't think it's anti-American at all. What that scene is about. I think that it's, I, I, it's anti-war and it's, it's, it's messaging about like what is the fallout like what is the purpose of like why we went through this and it's re- it's a hard thing i think to accept and obviously this story is focused on the soldier's point of view so that's like the biggest thing i think they have to answer is like did i was it worth it was all this worth it to go through to come back to this home that i don't feel as associated with i i feel this distance from that i lost my hands for it was it all worth it to, to have that and I don't know but it's a it's an extremely powerful scene not only visually because you get a great badass punch from uh, Fred to the guy but also Homer rips off the pin it's another big one of those Oscar clip moments for for how Russell in his performance and uh, yeah it's a phenomenal scene and really tackles a lot of like subjects yeah it's it's not anti-American it's more just anti-war like you said and I feel like these three people could actually sit down and have a conversation. It's it's more so just that the person, he just clearly didn't know the audience he was talking to, right? Like, he clearly wasn't in the war. He was probably too old to be in World War II, so he didn't really understand how traumatic and, and horrible it was from their point of view. And they are probably, you know, anti-war as well, but the, the fact that you would say that all these men went through this and it doesn't really mean too much and like we were wasting our time like all those people died for like no reason is like the worst thing you could say to to someone right especially in that point of view where they probably lost a lot of their friends in the war and to say that none of it matters is like the worst possible thing you could say to a soldier and it's not like advocating for how great america is it's in fact showing just how diverse and how people just have drastically different opinions based on their experience and i think that's so apparent till today and people's culture war of the right wing or left wing or Twitter and all this political nonsense and making everything political is it's it's clearly already seen here in 1945 where you can see people wanting to just argue for the sake of arguing because they think they have the right answer and it's such a small detail that you don't really think about is addressing America as a whole and as a community but it really does it tells you a lot about these, these different point of views and these different perspectives and I could totally see people watching this film and kind of like understanding what this guy is saying, but it makes perfect sense why these characters are so frustrated at him and, and that angry. Yeah. A hundred percent. So it's a, it's a great scene and uh, we didn't really talk too much about it, but like why he's back at this like soda jerk job and it's, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. So he, Fred goes back to like the pharmacy that it's like a department store really that he was working at yeah. and he's trying to get a better job out of it, but they don't really want to give him too much. Cause it's like, um, it, it was bought out by a big corporation. Uh, essentially, it was like originally a mom and pop store bought out by a corporation, which again is a huge, like way before its time about commentary on capitalism in, in America. Like for 1946, I think this is like 20 years ahead of like where it should have been. But anyway, so yeah, so like it's really interesting that he now has to work this job and he doesn't. It's not fulfilling. Like he's yeah, like he's a soda jerk and he and he's. He's fun with like the children that he serves, and and he's he seems really good at it, and has a good natured heart about it. But it's not where he feels he can be best utilized. It clearly is not providing a great home for him and Mary, which is like the ultimate like what they butt heads over is that 
he can't provide for her like what she wants because she wants this like extravagant lifestyle. She wants to be the wife of a soldier and he just wants to settle down and like you clearly he just wants to settle down with Peggy because Peggy could bring all of what he wants that loving that nurturing besides just like being a housewife for him which was like what a man of 1946 would have wanted out of a woman but anyways it's uh it's what ultimately brings up this like big confrontation between mary and fred and that's where we get the line uh why did i waste the best years of my life on you you know she wasted what she's thinking the best years of her lives for probably her early to mid 20s waiting for this guy to come back and he came back with really nothing for her so she feels completely wasted about it and it's the one time that we hear the film's title and it's the one thing you can think about like oh is the best years of our lives supposed to be the past or is it the future you know it, and, and that's where like we had the whole discussion at the beginning but but that's where it comes from is that like Mary presents that argument of like that I wasted the best years of my life on you. So now Fred's like, well, did I waste the best years of my life trying to do this? And how can I reconnect and how can I become better? And that's when he really, you know, he tries to go for Peggy and he, and he really wants to, and Peggy wants that too. Like it, it's, she even says it to her parents that I'm going to break this marriage up, yeah. which is like crazy again, like this crazy thing for 1946 that this like, young uh, she just be 18 19 20 year old girl is just like i'm gonna break up this marriage of this people that like i barely know but i'm gonna be this homewrecker and her parents are like kind of accepting of it yeah and it's we have to know too with mpwa especially when we look back at casablanca a few films ago wouldn't even let them have a kiss without them kind of acknowledging that the husband's gone and at this point yeah. either we're getting more lenient or they somehow got away with it the fact that they share a kiss while he's still married and they kind of pursue a would-be relationship in the future and want that relationship while he's still married. So that's a really interesting aspect of just of the time we're seeing this progression going and maybe it's the war, maybe it's the MPA kind of double-A just, you know, getting lighter and more loose on the rules. But I found it really fascinating that it does push that that boundary and it. You slowly understand where Fred is and you get that bigger picture and you really do believe their love, I think, by by the end of it yeah you definitely do and one thing again this is where like i felt that millie uh really was just like strong focus of the film so uh peggy's arguing for with her dad mainly about like why she wants to break them up and she really goes peggy really goes after her parents being like you guys had it so good you like you got to get married you got to go get a honeymoon in the south of france and it, and she's like i don't get to have that i don't get to have the idyllic uh, type of situation and she says essentially that they're not you know that they that they're not as in love as they think they are they don't know what love is and millie kind of takes a step back and and she says we never had any trouble how many times have i told you i hated you and believed it in my heart how many times have you said you were sick and tired of me that we were all washed up how many times have we had to fall in love all over again and so to me again that signals that millie was able to reconnect with al that they that they have this really strong bond and relationship that they keep falling in love again. That wasn't seen by Peggy, but once Peggy realizes that love is about fighting for it, that, that you have to put a lot of effort and work into it to make something work is what the ultimate payoff is. And once she realizes that she feels very sorry for that, she yelled at her parents that she, um, you know, that she said they didn't understand what love is when clearly they do. And she still wants to just have Fred because she feels that love for him. And they're 
at least Millie's accepting of it. But then Al starts to kind of be like, I don't know like what to make of this. Like, I don't know how to handle this because he agrees that like Fred would probably be a good match for her, but like she, he doesn't want his daughter to be a homewrecker. Yeah. It's conflicting. Cause he kind of saw Fred as just this friend, this kind of ally. And to me, it made me seem that kind of Fred's older. And that's more of why Al is like, there's no way like my daughter's just become of age and you're just immediately trying to like hop in. You're breaking up a marriage too. Like there's so many dramatic elements to it. And you could totally see why he wouldn't want them to go down this rabbit hole. And, Maybe he's like, oh, my daughter's so young, she doesn't understand, and that kind of plays back to like, oh, has she lost her virginity? Like, do we need to have the talk with her? It kind of goes back earlier on where Fred just sees her, or Al sees her as as young, as being young and immature and not really, like, believing their love. So you get those moments definitely from her, and it builds up Al's character, and you understand his kind of point of view. And then, like you are saying, we, we work up to the point where Al sits down with Fred and basically tells him, like, it's over. Like, you cannot see Peggy anymore. This is the end of that. Just accept it. Yeah, it's a it's a great scene for all three characters because Homer kind of comes back, so they all go to Butch's. So this is like again another big set piece, another big meeting place in the story. Um, the quick thing I want to talk about Homer with that is that he's learning how to play the piano mm-hmm. using the hooks, and they show him being able to do it, which is so fucking awesome, so cool that they they took the time to show that that, and he look Homer looks so happy that he's able to play the piano that he's able to create something even though having the hooks but the main meat and potatoes of that scene is al confronting fred it's shot beautifully it's this really tight framing it's just like this one long two shot for the most part and they're just going back and forth they're staring at each other there's you know there's there's just this really good like meaty tension in there and the the depth of focus is like really good you can kind of see everything in the background it's so crisp and clear and yeah, it's basically Al just saying to Fred, don't talk to my daughter. Don't date her. You're never going to have her stay away from her. Cause clearly Peggy is like very emotional about it. And Al for him is like, if I just keep Fred away from her, she'll just move on and be able to not have to, you know, marry a divorce man or, or, or wreck a marriage, even though like he probably acknowledges and knows that Fred would probably be the best thing for her. It's a great scene to kind of like bring you as a viewer and especially our two, one of the two of three main leads and kind of pin them against each other. It's not like a battle to the death, but it's a really serious topic that they both have to kind of struggle and confirm with. And it's a really interesting point of view to have as a viewer because you get to kind of side with one or the other and kind of understand both sides. But you get to kind of choose whether Fred should go after and actually kind of pursue her Peggy still or or should he kind of recede back, which he kind of does. He really takes Al and what he says very seriously. I mean, he's got a lot of respect for him. He kind of looks up to him. He's like the older man in the relationship. Even though he's a captain, he, he sees him almost as, as a father figure. You kind of get that. Both him and Homer see Al that way. So it is really hard for him. And after that scene, we kind of get to see them kind of separate. And you get more of Homer playing the piano. And you get this kind of buildup of tension of kind of wondering what Fred's going to do. There's a good shot of, of Fred calling Peggy. But that's happening in the background. And then Al's like watching Homer play piano. And that, again, that this all goes to Greg Toland and like him using depth of focus, which he was just very famous for. And you can clearly see, you know, Fred just like, you can see him mouthing the words to Peggy like, this can't happen. Yeah, without actually hearing it. Yeah, yeah. without actually hearing it. And then he leaves and. Homer's like, where are you going? You know, Fred, like, what's going on? Like, he doesn't Homer, understand. Yeah, yeah, Homer doesn't understand. It's like 
the two older brothers didn't tell the younger brother type of thing. Yeah, he's just like, can we just have fun still? Like, when when we play again? What are you guys doing? Oh yeah, what? I thought we're all hanging out. And uh, so when what becomes like the penultimate scene is, it it's really interesting because it it takes this dramatic turn where Fred, uh, he decides to leave Boone City. He's done with Mary. He and he decides to leave and. As he's waiting again for an airplane for to take him away, he's in an airfield of just broken down airplanes, the air fighters that were used in the war. The way I took it as the air fighters are like the all the soldiers just sitting there like lost and not knowing what to do with themselves because there's just like all this material that was used for the war that's now just sitting and rusting. I don't know what you felt yeah. when you see like all those planes just sitting in that field and not even being used it says a lot of things and i think we get more of that i think there's a mention of in the beginning when they first fly over and you kind of establish this kind of dead and they kind of mention how oh that's a waste like if we had all of that like when we were in germany or japan like you imagine what we could have done with that we could have like won this kind of battle or so and so so there's kind of like a mention in the very beginning but it's not until after that kind of emotional plane scene where he kind of hops back in a bomber and it's like the one that he was flying in and it really takes him back and they're kind of like playing all this like audio to make it seem like he's almost back in the war and it's really dramatic it's almost like he's in a fight scene of yeah. with another like plane or bomber and the score really like drop like it's really dramatic oh yeah and the score is really dramatic throughout it and we didn't really talk too much about it but i found it really beautiful and, and really phenomenal because it's it feels so patriotic but it also has this like undertone of just sadness and like this weird patriotic kind of music that's then kind of distorted where it's like, is this patriotic? I mean, it fits right into the character and their perspectives and it's really heavy throughout the entire movie and get a lot of music, but I think it guides us throughout this film. And I think it probably helps speed up the film as well. This two hours and 50 minutes really doesn't feel like it It feels like a two hour film, honestly watching it. So this is a really powerful scene I found for Fred and it really kind of cements his character but yeah, seeing this whole field of the planes, it does have that aspect to it. But it also has like, well, like, again, was anything that we just did, is that even worth it? Like all of this shit that we just used, all it was so important to us. Like that was like our home for Fred. And now it's just sitting here and like no one's ever going to care about it. And then he learns again right after like hopping out of the plane that they're about to take all these planes and everything that's in that junkyard and just destroy it to make it a home like you know prefab home that they could easily just build up with it being like the baby boom and right after the war all the different houses that you'll need and and people having families and everything like that so that plays on to it again like it's going to be like a forgotten past like this time is moving on you're not even going to have these like things to remember your time at war by it's all just going to be in your head and no one's going to really care about it after this so it's even more just on you but it's a perfect way to wrap up his character and not to solve his PTSD. Obviously, this film is not saying that you can solve any of these problems. And I think that's what's so beautiful about this film is that all their different struggles and they all have really well-earned arcs, but they're not solving their issues. They're basically showing them like how they can help improve things and what they need to do to kind of like make themselves more calm or accept ex- kind of accept that part of them. And that's perfect with Fred's character who basically sees these people that are taking these planes and they're going to then kind of break them down and make prefabricated kind of parts for houses. And it's a perfect ending for him. He just jumps in. He's like, hey, I want to do this job. And can you hire me? Like immediately yeah. he's already like, and it's 
from a viewer point of view, you're like, okay, this is a lot. Like, this is what is the this is the perfect timing that they would be here. That he hops out of the plane. Like, it's hard to believe almost, but it's so satisfying for his character, and it makes perfect sense that it's like, oh, I'm so about this. This works for me so well. Yeah. How did that work for you? Yeah, I, I think that works out perfectly, and I think you made a great point that none of the arcs are actually fully resolved. They're just they answer that question at the end of the film, which is how do I move on with my life? How do I build something uh, on this and and how do I am able to, to move forward? And yeah, for Fred, like just working on the prefabricated homes, like gives him a good job. It helps him take what was a huge part of his life the last few years and deconstruct that and build it up to something new. So it, it represents a lot right there and, and, and it's really great visuals. And so then that scene transitions to the final scene of the film and that's the wedding of Homer and Wilma. And in that scene with Homer and Wilma, everyone comes back together for, and, and I mean really everyone. So one, the wedding between Homer and Wilma was fucking beautiful. It was full. There's so much love and you can, it, there's this great moment where his uncle Butch is like playing a piano and cueing all the kids want to start singing. Here comes the bride. And it's a kind of a funny and endearing moment because they start too early and then they finally do it. And then watching again, seeing Homer use his hooks to put the ring on her finger. And ultimately what I thought was like this really great profound moment was basically the, the pastor takes Wilma and Homer's hands and, and he holds both of them. He puts one on top of the other. And again, it's the signaling that Homer is accepting of himself. He's that he's accepting that his family is going to be there for him, that he's accepting that Wilma is going to, you know, not only just hold his hand, but be there for him to help him through this process to, to get him back into society and to be that support system for him. And it's such a great moment. And then what comes out of that though, is Al and his family are there. And then Fred's there as Homer's best man. And of course, Peggy's there. And Fred and just looks at Peggy the whole time. And especially as they're making the vows and as you know they're saying the I do's, it's just Fred and Peggy just staring at each other. And the film ends with they're all celebrating happy. Fred and Peggy embrace. And then it just fades to black. Oh, man. It's such a beautiful ending. Yeah. So one, what do you think of that ending of just like the wedding happens? They just kiss and it fades to black. There's like no acknowledgement by Al that he's OK with this, that there's no really resolve between Al and Fred and like their friendship. Like they can, you can tell that they're sort of okay with each other, but they're still like that. Like again, that distance between them. Yeah. I, it's like the only thing that kind of fault the film is Al gets kind of lost after he tells Fred, you know, like stay away from Peggy. It's not going to happen. He's gone for the last 40 minutes of the film and we don't see him to the wedding. And he, Al doesn't have a single speaking line at the wedding. But what I think this, that last shot does so well is that it's framing Everyone in the wedding, everyone's super happy, you know, they're kissing and everyone comes together to really just like hug and and appreciate their marriage now. But what happens is that, you know, Peggy gets revealed because the crowd moves and Fred's there standing alone because he's there to support them, be a best man. And it's definitely about the wedding, but he knew the moment that he walks in and sees her again, like it's over. They both knew that like it's not no one's going to stop them. And that's kind of their relationship in their arc. Like it doesn't matter what other people say. They know what's right and they know what their love is and they know what it means to each other. So it's like a perfect shot without even saying any words, any kind of dialogue is all done just directly in the blocking and their performances, which is honestly quite profound how little this film uses exposition and, and kind of directly has to detail all these things. And I think it's because Alan Fred's relationship is, 
they're just friendly. They're really not friends. If we look at this overall, like all of these people aren't really friends. They just kind of have this familiar bond with each other. And it's not really about Al having to approve. In fact, I think if there was a scene where Al is just like, I give you the permission, not only is it really weird from a man kind of approving a woman's love, but it's also, that's not really about what Al's arc is. I think Al's arc is kind of solved when he realizes that his wife is the person there that's going to be the person that supports him and gets him out of it. But yeah, yeah, really insanely powerful. I really love the ending. Yeah, I mean, and the way that Dana Andrews and Teresa Wright interact with each other, it's so good. There, there's a scene earlier in the film that we didn't even talk about where Fred finally gets back into his apartment and Peggy drops him off and there's all these great facial expressions that go back and forth with each other. They don't even say anything. But it, yeah, again, like it's just such great emotive acting and... And the way it's blocked, the way it's shot, it, it that's the the scenes are packed and filled with like imagery, and it's just beautiful. It's a really well done film, and again, like it's a kind of a quick three hours. Like all of it just like really comes together and, and happens, and then the story ends. You, you really want more. Like I really wanted to know more about how these characters ended up. I don't want a best years of our lives two type of thing. Although today's world, we would definitely get that. But yeah, it's it's this really great story. It gets wrapped up in a beautiful way. And it ultimately becomes a Best Picture winner. So we should really talk about the 19th Academy Awards. The American Broadcasting Company presents the 19th Motion Picture Academy Award presentation. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Buddy Twist speaking from a special isolation booth in Box C at the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles. For the first time in the history of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the public is attending the annual presentation of awards of merit. To you who are unable to attend in person, ABC hopes you can see and hear this great spectacle through our eyes and voice. We have microphones on stage, in the wings, the orchestra pit, high overhead, and special equipment connected directly with the motion picture projectors to pick up the soundtrack of the films to be shown here tonight. Thousands are here in the world's largest theater, the Shrine Auditorium, 6,700 to be exact. Thousands more are in the specially constructed stands at the theater entrance, with the sky overhead being stabbed with million candle power searchlights. It's a great night, and we'll be here for three hours or so, and you're more than welcome to join us. Now, let's get to the opening of the 19th Annual Academy Awards. The 19th Academy Awards were held on March 13, 1947, at Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles, California. The event was hosted by Jack Benny, and this was the first time since the second Academy Awards, that every category had, at most, five nominations. Academy Honorary Awards. First, an Academy Juvenile Award went to Claude Jarman Jr. The Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award went to Samuel Goldwyn. And Honorary Awards went to Lawrence Olivier for his outstanding achievement as an actor, producer, and director in bringing Henry V to the screen. Another one was given to Ernest Lubitsch for his distinguished contributions to the art of the motion picture. And finally, one was given to Harold Russell for bringing hope and courage to his fellow veterans through his appearance in the best years of our lives. Best Special Effects goes to Tom Howard for Bly Spirit. This is Howard's first of two Oscars for Best Special Effects. He would also go on to win for the 31st Academy Awards for Tom Thub, and he's also the special effects advisor for 2001, A Space Odyssey. Best film editing went to Daniel Mandel for the best years of our lives. Uh, this is Mandel's second of three Oscars, including wins for the, for the Pride of the Yankees, and he would go on to win for the 1960 Best Picture winner 
the apartment and he is one of four editors to win three best film editing oscars which is tied for the most all time best cinematography color goes to charles rosher leonard smith and arthur arling for the yearling this is rosher's second of two total oscars in his career and he actually previously won all the way back in the first academy awards for best cinematography for sunrise a song of two humans so pretty astonishing we're getting almost a 20-year comeback for him to win another kind of yeah I, I thought it's really cool that that there was that much distance between the two and like uh, i now want to see the yearling just to understand it but also he did this in color so it's it's extremely fascinating um, but moving on to best cinematography black and white that went to arthur miller for anna and the king of siam he previously won for how green was my valley for 1941 great best picture winner but what's interesting, I wanted to point this out right now, is that there are only two nominees in the two cinematography categories. And there are some other categories where there are less, but I, th- I just found it a little interesting that there are only two nominees per each category and not one for Best Years of Our Lives, which great that it won Best Film Editing. I think it should have deserved for cinematography, like a nomination for cinematography. It should have deserved, but that's just my opinion. Yeah, certainly. It could be like the post-war kind of shuffle. More people are coming back. There's maybe people that were in the industry that are now coming back for more, and they're kind of figuring all that out. Yeah, I mean, like, I know, like, they established that, like, only a limit of five could be nominated because there were years before this where we had, like, 18 nominees in some categories, but this feels like a little, like, way too much of an overcorrection to only nominate two films in each of these categories. Best Art Direction, Interior Decoration, Color goes to Cedric Gibbons and Paul Gross and with interior decoration for Edwin B. Willis. Best Art Direction Interior Direction Black and White went to Lyle R. Wheeler, William S. Darling, and interior direction by Thomas Little and Frankie Hughes for Anna and the King of Siam. Uh, So just one little note about this film. It would go on to become The King and I, the musical from 1956, uh, which is so beloved by so many people. I love The King and I. Have you ever seen The King and I? It's a great movie um, and a great musical. Would highly recommend. Best sound recording goes to John P. Lividary for The Jolson Story. This is Lividary's second of three total Oscar wins, and he would go on to win for the 1953 film From Here to Eternity. Yeah, what's interesting about this, one about this category is that you also got nominations for Best Years of Our Lives and It's a Wonderful Life. But the Jolson story is about the singer Al Jolson, so I feel like that's probably why I got sound recording ultimately. But yeah, famous for the first talkie, yeah, jazz singer. Best original song went to "On the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe" from the Harvey Girls. Music by Harry Warren. Lyrics by Johnny Mercer. Uh, Mercer said the lyrics came to him when he was sitting on a Union Pacific train and saw another train labeled Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe. And he was struck by the rhythm of the words. The song was sung by Judy Garland in the film, which she also starred in. Best scoring of a musical picture goes to Morris Stoloff for The Jolson Story. This is his second of three career Oscar wins. And he is particularly notable for working as a composer for, for Sammy Davis Jr., Al Jolson, and Frank Sinatra. Best scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture went to... Hugo Friedhofer for the best years of our lives. I want to take a second. One, this is Friedhofer's first and only career win. I think the film definitely deserved the nomination and and the win. It was a beautifully scored film. But, John, this is the first time, uh, first of 26 times, 
that a best picture winner would also win for best scoring. So I one I found it fascinating that it took us 19 episodes that for one of these movies to actually win best scoring. We've had some really great ones if you really think back about like Broadway it. Broadway melody, right? <laughs> that was not what I was going to go for. I think you were going to say that. Nope, I was going to say Gone with the Wind or oh, right, or right. Rebecca or The Lost Weekend. Uh but yeah, I guess the Broadway melody mm-hmm. could have been. That's what came to mind first. Oh, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is pretty significant. I mean, we only talked a little bit about the music here, but it's really, 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 really important. I think without it, it, it wouldn't have this kind of earnest feeling to it, and it helps play with a lot of the emotions. Like, the script is, there's a lot of dialogue, for sure, but it's not directly apparent, and it's not a lot of exposition, and I think with the music, it like really helps guide you through these characters and really guide you through this film, which has a lot of different characters and a lot of different kind of perspectives to show. So really phenomenal music, totally worthy. Best live action short subject to real goes to Gordon Hollingshead for a boy and his dog. Best live action short subject one real went to facing your danger to Gordon Hollingshead. So good for you, Gordon Hollingshead for getting these two, in the same year. But what's interesting about Facing Your Danger, though, is the first time an Academy Award went to a film shot by an amateur filmmaker using a 16 millimeter camera. So I can't wait for the next filmmaker to win a, an award for shooting everything on an iPhone. Oh, wow. Well, it could happen. There's definitely been some good iPhone films at this point, but I don't know about Oscar films, though. We'll see. It could happen. I, w- I w- thought you were going to say 16 millimeter film that won an Oscar. And I'm like, yeah, it's probably been. A long time, if ever. There's probably no best picture that's been shot on 60mm. Best short subject cartoon goes to Fred Quimby, The Cat Concerto. Another one. This is another one for Tom and Jerry, and it's considered one of the best shorts of the entire series. Even in 1994, it was voted number 42 of the 50 greatest cartoons of all time by members of the animation field. And this is the fourth consecutive win for Fred Quimby. Best Documentary Short Subject went to Seeds of Destiny. Uh, This is a short propaganda film about the despairing situation faced by millions of children in the wake of the Holocaust who are homeless, parentless, orphaned, and in poor health. The film was produced by the Defense Department of the U.S. Army. Keep the world's attention focused on the suffering of displaced and orphaned refugee children in transit and displaced persons camps in Europe. Extremely powerful stuff. And uh, very interesting that this film won, but still issues with refugees happening in today's world best motion picture story goes to clements dane for vacation from marriage this is dane's only win she was predominantly known as a playwright and novelist dane at the age of 30 was actually one of the women eligible to vote for the first time under the representation of the people act of 1918 in the uk and this film stars Robert Dunant and Deborah Kerr as a married couple whose relationship is shaken by their service in the Second World War. So a little similar themes to our Best Picture winner here. Best Screenplay goes to The Best Years of Our Lives, screenplay by Robert E. Sherwood, based on Glory for Me by McKinley Cantor. This is Sherwood's only career win. He was a playwright and screenwriter, who, and he notably was a writer for Rebecca, which won Best Picture in 1940. Cantor's original story, Glory for Me, was written as a novella in blank verse, or commonly, or commonly known as iambic pentameter. And Cantor was a war journalist and novelist, and he won a Pulitzer Prize for fiction for his 1955 novel, Andersonville. 
Best Original Screenplay goes to Muriel Box and Sydney Box. For The Seventh Veil, this is Box's first career win, and they are actually a husband and wife combo. They worked on over 40 scripts and plays together as writers. Sydney was originally a journalist, and Muriel was a screenwriter and director for stage and film. She actually directed 12 feature films, but they unfortunately divorced in 1969 after 34 years of marriage. Best Supporting Actress went to Anne Baxter for The Razor's Edge as Sophie McDonald. This is Baxter's only career win out of two nominations. She was also nominated for her role as Eve in All About Eve, the 1950 Best Picture winner, which we will be hitting on very soon. Baxter, uh, she recounted later in her life that The Razor's Edge contained her only great performance, a hospital scene where the character Sophie loses her husband, child, and everything else. She said she relived the death of her brother who had died at, at the age of three to go through that. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out, though, was that there was no nominations for Best Supporting Actress for Myrna Loy, Teresa Wright, or Kathy O'Donnell, our three main uh, actresses in The Best Years of Our Lives. And I was a little shocked by that. Not, none of them got a nomination. I thought they were all really strong and really powerful, and I would have liked to have seen them at least nominated in this category that year. Yeah, I would probably vote for, like, Teresa Wright probably to get the nom there. Yeah, for Peggy. Um, uh, yeah, I, she definitely was probably the one that stood out and and she fits, I think, the bill as a Best Supporting Actress. But she did win previously, so who knows? Best Supporting Actor goes to Harold Russell for the best years of our lives as Petty Officer Second Class Homer Parrish. On June 6, 1944, while Harold Russell was an Army instructor teaching demolition work with the U.S. 13th Airborne Division at Camp McCall, North Carolina, a defective fuse detonated TNT explosives that Harold was handling. He lost both hands and was given two hooks to serve as hands. After his recovery while attending Boston University, Russell was featured in Diary of a Sergeant, an Army film about rehabilitating war veterans. When film director William Wyler saw the film on Russell, he cast him in Best Years of Our Lives. William Wyler, who directed the film, called it the finest performance I have ever seen on screen. But Russell only earned $10,000 for his performance and did not receive residual profits. Despite his Oscar-nominated performance, Harold Russell was not a professional actor. As the Academy Board of Governors considered him a long shot to win, they gave him an Academy Honorary Award for bringing hope and courage to his fellow veterans through his appearance. When Russell, in fact, won Best Supporting Actor, there was an enthusiastic response. He's the only actor to have received two Academy Awards for the same performance. In 1992, Russell actually sold his Best Supporting Actor statue at auction for $60,000 in order to pay for his wife's medical bills. Amazing. Amazing that Harold Russell not only in real life went through this tragedy and lost both his hands and was willing and worked through it, but then gave an amazing performance at the Academy was one like, you know, we don't know if you're really going to win. So we're going to give you an Oscar because of like what you did. And then the fact that he did win is the only one to have two awards for the same performance in the same film. It is just absolutely phenomenal. He, he deserved it. He was the heart of the film. I, I said it before. He was my favorite subplot of the film. He's one of my favorite subplots of any best picture winner, really of any film. It, it It's it's so emotional. Like, I'm even tearing up just thinking about how you know how much emotion what was put into that performance and and, and how real and 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 how in depth it, it was. And you know, he wasn't a trained actor. The fact that he pulled it off and and he did so well 
with it is truly phenomenal. And I think Harold Russell really deserved this. This is awesome. This is one of the things that the Oscars got right. Yeah, this is absolutely well-deserved. And it's really a phenomenal performance. I think you could show this to anyone and you would kind of assume that he's an actor because of how natural he is and really just how just earnest and honest his performance feels. And that obviously probably is drawn from his you know own experience. And it's also has this awful tinge of just it clearly he wasn't respected in the industry based on how much they paid him with no residual profits and hearing about how he had to sell his Oscar later on to even afford his wife's medical bills is, is pretty awful. And it shows you just how dark this industry is. And not only after people get older, how little the industry and unions actually care for you, but also just how non-respected he was even in the industry at the time and even winning the award. It's troubling on both one side and the other. It's just, it's really great that he was honored that award, but it's also clearly the industry was not respecting him as an actor and, and clearly didn't really continue to respect him after this. Best actress went to Olivia de Havilland for To Each His Own as Miss Josephine Jody Norris. This is de Havilland's first of two career Oscar wins. She would go on to win for The Heiress in 1949. She was previously nominated twice for Gone with the Wind and Hold Back the Dawn, and each year she lost to Hattie McDaniel and her sister Joan Fontaine, respectively, each times. I wanted to really talk about De Havilland because she's an iconic force in this era of Hollywood. She appeared in 49 feature films. Most of her work spanned from 1935 to 88. Uh, again, she was an icon, consistently one of the most dominant actresses of the golden age of Hollywood. She was an activist for performance rights, and she notably sued Warner Brothers, uh, which was over a contract uh, dispute over the length of a legal contract, which she won and established new contract deals for Hollywood actors that essentially then led to the crumble of the foundations of the studio system. Her role into each his own was her first one since the lawsuit after the California court of appeal ruling freed her from her Warner brothers contract to have learned signed a two picture deal with paramount in June of 1945. She began filming to each his own, uh, which is about an unwed mother who gives up her child for adoption and then spends the rest of her life trying to undo that decision to Havilland assisted on bringing on Mitchell Leeson as a director, trusting his eye for detail and his empathy for actors. Uh, the role required to Havilland to age nearly 30 years over the course of the film from an innocent small town girl to a shrewd, ruthless businesswoman devoted to her cosmetics company. While de Havilland never formally studied acting, she did read Stanislavski's autobiography, My Life in Art, and applied one of his quote-unquote methods for this role to help her define her character during the four periods of the story. She used a different perfume for each period. She also lowered the pitch of her voice incrementally in each period until it became a mature woman's voice. And this performance garnered her the award for best actress of that year. And according to film historian, Tony Thomas, the award represented a vindication of her long struggles with Warner brothers and confirmation of her abilities as an actress. She was the oldest living and early surviving Academy Award winner until her death in 2020 and was widely considered as being the last surviving major star from the golden age of Hollywood cinema. I know it's a lot right there to give to De Havilland, even though we didn't even talk about this movie, but we talked a lot about her in, in Gone with the Wind. She's an icon of the golden age of Hollywood, and uh, I felt like this is a really cool comeback story for her. Definitely. Yeah, definitely going to add that to my watch list. That movie sounds so fascinating too and and sounds like it's gonna be remade by hollywood eventually 
Best actor goes to Frederick March for the best years of our lives as Platoon Sergeant Al Stevenson. This is March's second career Oscar win after previously winning Best Actor for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1931. And March is actually one of two actors, the other being Helen Hayes, to have won both the Academy Award and a Tony Award twice. And this is the second time in the last three ceremonies that the Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor winners came from the same film. And notably here, we have to point out that there is no nominations for Dana Andrews, who played Fred in the film. How do you feel about that, Ben? Yeah, I think that's it's one great that Frederick Marsh won. I think that he he was great in this film. I don't want to take anything away from him, but I don't think he was really the main lead of the film. I think they really categorized Harold Russell Wells as a supporting actor. I would have put Frederick Marsh as a supporting actor, and I would have put Dana Andrews, who played Fred, uh, in the film as the lead actor of the film. So I'm, I'm a little shocked. I couldn't find too much as to why this decision was made. You know, nowadays we know that there are these campaigns and for your consideration, you know, deals, you know, for everyone to vote. And he just wasn't, I guess, promoted enough that he just didn't get that much consideration for Dana Andrews. But I'm not going to take that away from Frederick Marsh, who definitely deserved it. But I wanted to point out uh, one name in particular. And I just wanted to get your opinion on this. James Stewart. He was nominated for It's a Wonderful Life in the same year, same category. I think if I was voting back then, I might have voted for James Stewart for It's a Wonderful Life that year. We'll definitely talk about the overall award next, about whether that film is is uh, you know overlooked or not. I think giving it to James Stewart definitely would have been the right call here, just judging on the nominations that we see here. I do think Dana Andrews is the lead of the film for the most part, and I do like his performance. And I do think he should have been nominated, especially over Frederick March. Not that that's a bad performance. I just think that's uh, could have been more prominent in the film, and I don't know if I would consider that best actor. At least he was not the lead. I think we both agree that Dana Andrews, Dana is, the- Andrews is definitely more of the lead throughout the film. But yeah, I mean, James Stewart is a, a magnificent performance. Who doesn't like It's a Wonderful Life? And ah, man, it's hard. It's hard because he plays... You know, he plays himself over a bunch of different years. You get a bunch of different kind of James Stewart's and you get the really emotional, dramatic arc from that film. So it's really hard not to say that it should be James Stewart and to pick him worthy over Frederick March. But both great performances. It's a really, really tough one. Moving on to best director. Best director went to William Wyler for the best years of our lives. This is Wyler's second of three career best director wins. He previously won for the Best Picture of 1942, Mrs. Miniver, and he would go on to win for the Best Picture of 1959, Ben-Hur. So all three career wins led to three Best Picture winners. Instead of talking about Wyler and his history, because when we get to Ben-Hur, I'm sure we'll talk about that more, I actually found this really interesting article from Academy Award winner Kenneth Lonergan. And he, Kenneth Lonergan won for Manchester by the Sea for Best Original Screenplay a few years ago. And he wrote up a whole article kind of talking about Weiler's career and, and what he did. And, and I wanted to take this excerpt from when he was talking about the best years of our lives. If, if you can find it, it's on Criterion.com. Just search Criterion, William Weiler. And this is probably the first article you'll find. It's, it's fascinating and it really does a good deep dive. But Kenneth Lonergan says, The movie does not suggest that everybody at home was personally, irrationally awful to the returning vets. The movie is about how badly out of step the servicemen found themselves with the natural hum and buzz of life at home. 
and how hard it was to find common ground with their closest friends and loved ones and all those who didn't fight in the war and who are now going about their business as Fred remarks, just as if nothing had ever happened. Wyler doesn't do a lot of fancy camera moves. He pushes in, he pans, he cuts, he tracks. But as somebody once said, he puts the camera in the only place it must be for each scene. I can't say he does this with every shot, but it's often true. And I, I, I don't think there's a better way to sum up the best years of our lives and the main themes of it and then just how well William Wyler is able to interweave the camera throughout that story. I think that's perfect for the last scene, which there's not much movement. It's very static, but it tells you everything you need to know about these characters. And finally, the nominees for Best Motion Picture, The Yearling, The Razor's Edge, It's a Wonderful Life, Henry V, and our winner of the 1946 Best Motion Picture, The Best Years of Our Lives, Samuel Goldwyn for RKO Radio Pictures. This is the first film to win Best Picture at the Academy Awards, the BAFTA Awards, and the Golden Globes Awards all at the same time, or all in the same year. And this is the first Best Picture winner to also win an Academy Award for its score, which is in the category of Best Musical Score that we mentioned. So, Ben... Tell me a little bit about the best years of our lives. Yeah, it's certainly, I mean, we talked a lot about it. It's certainly deserving to be here, to be nominated. I wanted to talk, I I could not let this episode go by without having a quick little discussion about It's a Wonderful Life and the best years of our lives. I, it's personally, it's a great, it's one of my favorite movies. I I ball uh, every time I've seen it and it's, we we talked so much about Frank Capra in, in our episodes here on Worthy. We you know we gave him so much love and adoration in previous episodes, and this one, "It's a Wonderful Life," might be his like really like some of his best work that he's ever done. And you just you watch it; it's such a timeless fucking movie. "It's a Wonderful Life." It really, I know it can be a little Christmassy, so maybe that's why it didn't get that recognition. Maybe because the best years of our lives really does a good deep dive into into these dramatic aspects of the soldiers returning home it was a little bit more political so i understand like maybe that's why it won but when you really look at a film and and just like how powerful it can be it's a wonderful life checks off so many boxes i'm not saying i don't know if it's better i think that's a hard question to really answer but for best picture i mean this is this is one of those it's a how green is my valley citizen Kane debate honestly certainly yeah I mean, th- this is pretty big for It's a Wonderful Life. Not only to, to be nominated, so it's being recognized, but maybe it should have won over the best years of our lives. I think it's a really, really hard thing to determine. I think looking at why it may have not won is you could look at It's a Wonderful Life kind of having a science fiction-y fantasy aspect to it with him kind of speaking to angels and and making these wishes, and, and it's got that religious aspect to it. So maybe it goes a little bit too far into fantasy where we haven't really seen a film like that win that's kind of that far out there with that kind of crazy of a plot. And I love It's a Wonderful Life. I, it wasn't actually a film that I watched as a family growing up. It it was a film I watched later on. I think I was like 20 by the time I actually saw that for the first time, and it's really beautiful, and I've seen it like six, seven times since then, and it's it really holds up. It's It's really, really beautiful Christmas film that I'll probably watch and show my kids forever moving forward, but... If I got to be honest, I think The Best Years of Our Lives is a better film. I think it's it it 
you know, the, it's a wonderful life really focuses on James Stewart's character. You, we have a little bit of the romance. It's really sweet. It's really charming. I'm not going to say anything against that film, but the best of years of our lives is so impactful. Not only for the country at this time, it's still so impactful. And you can look back and anyone with these symptoms, anyone who's coming back from war and doesn't matter when it is could really relate to this film. And it really honors these characters and it's not, you know, it's not taking them and exploiting them at all. It's really showing you this human life and these human struggles that people have to deal with. And I think it's really, really touching film. And I think it still holds up so much and it, and it does a lot. And I think with all the things that it's juggling, it lands it perfectly. And damn, what a great movie. Yeah, it it's a great movie. Um, again, like I don't know, I I can't answer that question. If it's a wonderful life, should have won best picture over it. Another year, maybe this is such. We can both agree that they're both worthy. Yeah, of winning. yeah, they're both they're both worthy of winning. So, but I, I would, I could not get through this whole podcast and talking about that ceremony without mentioning that like this movie was there and this movie deserves a huge, not only praise but also really huge consideration that it maybe should have won. So let's move on to some stats about the best years of our lives. Right now it has a 96% rating on Rotten Tomatoes of an 8.85 average Rotten Tomatoes rating. The top critics gave it 100% fresh rating and an average of 8.3 out of 10. Audience score gave it a 93% with a 4.39 rating out of 5. IMDb gives it an 8. And actually Metacritic, first time I'm mentioning them, gave it a 93 and won a total of seven Oscars out of eight nominations. So not a clean sweep, but almost there. So, John, what did you give the best years of our lives? I gave the best years of our lives a 95 out of 100, becoming my new highest scored film. Wow. Yep, after the last weekend, which was a 94. I don't really have many negative things to say about this film. I think Fred's character is honestly amazing and really kind of connects and really sticks together it's got a, a romance that may be a little bit hard to, to buy in fully but it's really fascinating homer and obviously his struggles is it's so beautiful and touching and what an amazing probably the best best supporting actor performance we've seen yet and the only thing that i'd really kind of nitpick about is is al's character i think the last 40 minutes you lose him and we could have had a scene or two more kind of really cementing where he fits in the world and kind of understanding where he kind of lies. But besides that, I think this movie is, is honestly almost perfect. I think this is quite unbelievable how, how they kind of juggled all these things and it really came together. And man, I love this movie. Yeah. I love it too. I feel exactly the same way. I'm going to take it a step further. Cause I gave it a 96. Wow. Trying to one up me. <laughs> trying to one up you. So right now that 96 is tied for second of my favorite movies. It's tied with all quiet on the Western front which I think is a little ironic that both those got a 96 and my top favorite is still Casablanca. Although I don't know if this is my favorite one out of the best pictures, but it's just my highest rated. But anyways, I just felt the best year of our lives. Again, what John said, it's nearly perfect. There's a little bit of issues. I feel of like there's like a few scenes and sequences that I think could have been chopped out that would have helped the flow of the film a little bit more, but I'm not saying that that was like detrimental to it. Um, I wish I wish there was more Homer, honestly. I think if this whole movie was about Homer, I think it would have been just as good. So our average ratings for the best movies so far through 19 Best Picture winners, John is at a 70.8, actually a 70.9 for rounding issues, so almost a 71, and mine is a 76.2 rating, average rating out of 19 total films that we have seen. 
so far so john let's answer that question is the best years of our lives worthy of the best picture award of 1946 without a doubt With, absolutely without a doubt i think i think you can just tell that we love this film there's we hit up on a lot of it there's probably so much that we didn't get to talk about and as always if you have anything you would love to talk with us about you can email us at worthy submissions at gmail.com you can hit us up on our instagram uh, at worthy podcast and we love talking about these movies and we would love to talk more about it with you guys so john is there any last minute thoughts on the best years of our lives you would like to fit in there yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna sum up this whole thing in one word. Okay, but uh, Ben doesn't think I I sum <laughs> I should sum it up in one word, so I, I'm gonna leave it at that. <laughs> Beautiful. I'm Ben, and I'm John, and, and this, this is worthy. Thanks for listening to Worthy, a breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. Listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. That's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.